Good afternoon, church. Let's uh, go before the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, your, your word is powerful and effective, sharper than any two-edged sword. So I pray that even now as your word is taught and proclaimed, that you would do your work, Lord, that you would cut where we need to be cut, that you would heal where we need to be healed, Lord, that you would uh, build up your your church, in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Uh, in 1994, uh, American teenager Michael Fay made international headlines for acts of theft and vandalism. But this wasn't just some teenager doing, goofing off, doing silly, uh, regrettable things that young people sometimes do. He had stolen road signs and spray-painted cars in the nation of Singapore. His punishment? Four months in prison, $2,000 fine, and six strokes of the cane. This is judicial caning as punishment with a rattan cane. The cane's four feet long, it's half an inch thick, and it's soaked in water to prevent it from splitting and creating splinters. Uh, criminals who are going to be caned, they aren't told until the day of that they're going to be receiving their caning, which adds to the anxiety and the punishment. And when it happens, the criminals are struck on the bare bottom as punishment for breaking the law. Many people objected to this punishment because they thought, well, this was a nonviolent, nonviolent acts of crime, and this is just too harsh of a punishment. Even President Clinton, the president at the time, he intervened to try to save Michael Fay from this caney. He held a press conference, the media got involved, Ironically enough, though, the American public actually supported the Singaporean government, thinking, well, if someone's living in that other country, they need to follow that other country's rules. At the end of the day, he was caned. I think his, uh, his, his sentence was reduced slightly uh, because the president got involved. So Singapore has strict laws. But, you know, it's a country with low crime and clean streets. Is it a utopia or is it a police state? Singapore has cameras everywhere. You can go into a room. It might have 20 cameras in one room keeping tabs on all the people. People don't show their emotions, probably because they're afraid they might be fined for disorderly conduct. Life might seem nice in Singapore, but someone's always watching. And a lot of people have that view about heaven or the kingdom of heaven. Well, it might be clean, the crime might be low, but it's no fun. If you're joining us, we're currently in a sermon series on the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew. We're in the Sermon on the Mount. We're learning about King Jesus and life, uh, life within the kingdom of heaven, a kingdom with strict laws. Last week, we heard from Rob about how Jesus said he did not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but he came to fulfill them. Until heaven and earth pass away, not one yoda, not one dot will pass from the law. We're going to spend the next several weeks unpacking what that means, that King Jesus came to fulfill the law. But, for, but today in our passage this afternoon, we're going to see that anger, insults, and broken relationships make you guilty of murder. Anger, insults, and broken relationships make you guilty of murder. So here's the question. Is God a cosmic killjoy? Is he 
a divine deity up there just ready to throw the book at us? Does he have billions of cameras trained on all of us, ready to slap us with a fine? Is the kingdom of heaven really just, a, you know, like the kingdom of Singapore, the nation of Singapore? Let's jump right in. Let's look at verse 21. Verse 21 of Matthew chapter 5. King Jesus. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. This phrase, you have heard it said, refers to the Pharisees' interpretation of the law. It's not the same as the phrase, it is written. Whenever you see it is written, it's a direct quotation from Scripture, God's words himself. Jesus here is drawing a contrast between God's word as written, it is written, and what was the Pharisees' interpretation of the law. You have heard it said. Well, the first part, no one really have any objections to. First part is from Moses, from the Ten Commandments. The sixth commandment in the Ten Commandments is, you shall not murder. But then the Pharisees added this other phrase, whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Now, on the surface, that sounds legitimate. This sounds correct. But the judgment here that is being referred to uh, is a local law court. That's the word that's being used in the original language. It's, it's a local law court. So what the Pharisees were saying is if you murder someone, you'll be liable, you'll be subject to a local law court. And there's a couple problems with that. Uh, number one, first, the Pharisees restricted the law of God. You see, avoiding murder was never the goal of the Ten Commandments, the Sixth Commandment, you shall not murder. It was only the starting point. The Pharisees led people to think, well, I haven't murdered anyone, so I'm good. Well, the teachers of the law, they should have known and taught that God looks at our heart and our intentions. For instance, Psalm 24, 3 and 4, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. See, even in, in, in the Old Testament, not murdering wasn't good enough. God desires clean hands and a pure heart. He desires truth in the inward parts. The psalm writer says, create in me a clean heart, O God. And man might look at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. You see, the Pharisees, by restricting the law of God, by restricting the commandments, they deceived people into thinking that God's commands were 100% achievable. Think about the rich young ruler in the Gospels. He might have sat under this false teaching. The rich young ruler came up to Jesus and said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, keep the commandments. And do you remember how he answered? The rich young ruler said, all these I have kept since my youth. See, he might have been taught by these false teachers that somehow it was possible to keep all of God's commandments since your youth. So the Pharisees restricted the law of God to something that was more manageable, self-contained, something that in theory we could all 100% achieve. The second problem was that the Pharisees restricted the punishment. They said, well, if you murder someone, you're subject, you're liable to a, a local law court. But that's not what God's Word actually teaches. For instance, Leviticus 24.17 says, Whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. So whatever teaching the Pharisees gave on the topic of murder, it should have included this, surely be put to death. 
But not only that, God was completely out of the picture. See, they talked about judgment, the horizontal plane of judgment, this local law court. But in reality, they should have been teaching on the vertical plane of judgment, God's future coming judgment for every single human being, each one of us, that, that God will bring every deed into judgment, including every secret thing. Craig Keener writes, God never wanted people merely to obey rules. He wanted them to be holy as He is, to value what He values. The Pharisees were, mere, were content. They were content with merely obeying rules. They had lots of rules. They built rules around rules to keep them from breaking what they thought were the important rules. So they were content and happy obeying rules, but God calls us to be holy as He is holy, to value what He values. So that's why Jesus corrects their understanding of the law and says, but I say to you. See, it's God Himself now, Jesus Christ, God in human form, the Word made flesh, who is correcting a misunderstanding of God's Word. You have heard it said, but I say to you. Let's look at verse 22. Jesus says, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. It's not enough simply to avoid the physical act of murder. We can be guilty of murder in other ways. Jesus says, if you're angry with someone, you're liable to judgment. Those strong feelings of annoyance, displeasure, or hostility towards another person, that can bring us under judgment. And we, we don't tend to think of anger that way. We can tend to have a very casual attitude towards anger. Oh, I was just venting, or I was frustrated, or I was upset. The audience who would have heard Jesus preach this, they would have known, okay, murder, yeah, sure, that brings you under judgment, you know, maybe more than a local law court. But Jesus says, no. Anger brings you under God's judgment. You might be thinking, well, wait, didn't Jesus get angry? I mean, he got angry. He cleared out. He cleaned out the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the merchants buying and selling in the temple. Jesus was angry, but he didn't sin. He had righteous anger, an anger that was motivated by a love for God, love for other people, and the welfare of other people. Jesus isn't talking about righteous anger here. He's talking about our more typical sinful and selfish anger. Anger is murder, and so is its close cousin, hatred. 1 John 3.15 says, Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Hatred can take so many different forms. It can take the form whether we think it or say it or, God forbid, we act upon it. We can think, okay, you're in my way. Uh, I wish you weren't here or I wish you were dead. We might not even say it, but even those thoughts are murder in God's sight. And that hatred can take the form of racism, which is another form of murder where we can have unfavorable or even biased judgments towards another person simply because of their race, 
thinking the worst about someone simply because of their race instead of exercising charitable judgments. And racism is murder. You might be thinking, wait, are you saying there's no difference between hatred and actually taking someone's life? Well, Jesus isn't saying that. Well, there are degrees of sin. There are angry thoughts, angry words, and of course, angry actions. But the point is that Jesus says we're not off the hook simply because we've avoided the physical act of murder. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, there are many ways in which men can be destroyed short of murder. We can destroy a man's reputation. We can shake someone's, somebody else's confidence in him by whispering criticism or by deliberate fault-finding. When were you recently angry with someone? You know, maybe it was your spouse. Maybe it was your children because you've told them for the hundredth time that they need to finish their dinner or stop fighting or share their toys. Or maybe it was your coworker. Maybe a roommate, someone you stay with, a neighbor. How do you express that anger? Do you keep it bottled up inside? Do you let it take, take root as bitterness within you? Do you raise your voice? Do you get impatient? The Lord definitely did a work in my heart. Even as I was preparing this sermon, I, He brought to mind occasions, times where I had been angry with people around me. And King Jesus calls us to a higher standard as kingdom citizens. He goes on and says, uh, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. This word insult is from the Aramaic word raka, raka, which means empty-headed. Commentators say this, this word raka, this insult, comes close to being an expletive. But it's not a serious filth word. It's a bit more common, something we might use in everyday language, like you idiot or stupid. In fact, it's so everyday, not a big deal. Everyone does it. In fact, it's, it's kind of like what we would think of when someone gets a parking ticket. I mean, it's a parking ticket. I mean, no big deal. Everyone gets a parking ticket from time to time. But to Jesus, it's not a big deal. Jesus says, whoever insults somebody who says, idiot, or stupid, you're liable to the council. Now, this word council in the Greek is sunedrion, which is commonly translated Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the highest court in Israel, kind of like our Supreme Court. Just like you wouldn't go to the Supreme Court for a parking ticket, much less so would you go to the Supreme Court for hurling an insult at someone. But Jesus says, hurling an insult at someone made in the image of God, created in the image and likeness of God, is a serious crime, which will bring you into the highest court. And he goes on. He says, whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. This word fool, you can think of it as like calling someone the lowlife or a villain or a jerk. What's the difference between insult and you fool? Well, John Stott says, when you insult, you know, the insult referred to here, this word insult, raka, when you call someone stupid, is aimed at someone's head. It's an insult towards their intelligence. But you fool is aimed at the heart. It's an insult aimed at someone's character. So you can murder someone's reputation, you can murder their character, you can murder their intelligence and be guilty of murder. 
And this is where Jesus throws out the, the shock and awe. He says, do that and you're going to hell. And this is shocking because these were, these were everyday phrases that people used in, in, in first century uh, Rome, first century Israel. This, were, this, this was everyday vocabulary. These were insults that people, th- you know, either thought in their minds or threw out with their mouth. Uh, fool or idiot or moron. These were just part of life. This was just everyday vocabulary. But, but to Jesus, it's not normal. It's not something we can just brush off. It's so serious, it can land you in hell. That's how serious sin is. Hell of fire is this Greek word Gehenna, which refers to the Old Testament location of the Valley of Hinnom. Throughout its history, the Israelites would sacrifice their children to the pagan god Molech by burning their children in fire. The pagan sacrifice. In fact, it was so wicked that it brought God's judgment on the nation of Israel. It was shut down by righteous King Josiah who took that valley of Hinnom where people were sacrificing their children to Molech, he turned it into a trash heap, a town dump, where dead animals and criminals were disposed of. And in order to keep the bodies and the trash from stinking, the fires in the valley of Hinnom, they they had to keep them burning continually. And there's evidence that in the first century, when Jesus was preaching, that it was still being used outside of Jerusalem as a smoldering, uh, smoldering trash pit. So this hellfire, this Gehenna, is this vivid picture, this vivid image of everlasting punishment that goes on and on, this eternal flame. But back then, and even now, people would have comforted themselves, assured themselves that, hey, they, I'm not a hardened criminal. I'm not those really wicked people that get sent over there. I'm pretty good. This is where Jesus pulls the rug out from under his audience and points to this ancient incinerator, this this hell of fire, this Gehenna, this continual flame, and says, that's not for the hardened criminals, that's not for the murderers, that's for people who get angry, people who throw insults, for people who say, you fool. And our culture can hear that, it's a reality of hell, and, and dismiss it. We tell jokes about hell but it's no laughing matter. And if you're not a believer here, realize that the topic of hell is unpopular. It can even seem unloving to tell people about hell. But stay with me here and let me illustrate and show you why telling people about hell is actually one of the most loving things to do. In 2009 and 2010, Toyota Motor Company recalled millions of vehicles. If you remember this from eight or nine years ago, there was a defect, this sticking accelerator pedal, where your gas pedal would get stuck. So you'd be driving along on the freeway, and then if you, your car had this defect, your gas pedal could get stuck, and then no matter how hard you tried to brake, your gas pedal would get stuck, and you would lose control of your car. And tragically, people died as a result of this stuck accelerator pedal. Even more tragic and even more stunning was that Toyota knew about the stuck accelerator pedal, but didn't tell anybody. It was ultimately irresponsible and unloving for Toyota to withhold this important information from its customers. In the same way, it's irresponsible and unloving for us as Christians to say nothing about hell. 
And there's a reason that Jesus spoke about hell twice as much as he did about heaven. He did that to warn people about the unquenchable fire so that people wouldn't end up there. Hell is all throughout the New Testament. Places like Revelation chapter 14, 10 and 11. Those who are in hell are tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. It's a serious matter. Jesus warned us. He's warning us even now about the dangers of hell, the reality of that torment forever and ever, day and night, because of how serious our sin is. He wants us to avoid sin and avoid judgment. You see, and it, it's not good enough, though, for us simply to avoid murder. We can be guilty of murder through our angry, anger and our hatred. But it's not enough even to avoid sinful anger, sinful hatred. Anytime Scripture forbids something, the sixth commandment says, you shall not murder, the opposite is commanded. Love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus here opens up entire new vistas for understanding God's character, God's law. The Pharisees restricted the law, restricted the punishment, and misrepresented God. But Jesus corrects that misinterpretation and expands the horizons of who God is and his character and unfolds the true meaning behind the law. Let's look at verses 23 and 24. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Jesus shifts things now at this point and makes it personal to each one of us. He says, so if you are offering your gift, and he's speaking to all of us, all of us religious people, churchgoers, those of us who check the box and say we're Christians. So he says, you churchgoer, if you're offering your gift. And there's two different kind of sacrifices in the Bible. There's, number one, the sin offering, which is used to secure divine forgiveness. And then, number two, there's the thank offering, which is a response to divine forgiveness. Jesus here is referring to the second one, second one, the thank offering. But I believe it's appropriate to apply his teaching to any time we approach God, whether we gather as believers on a Sunday, whether we receive sacraments or pray or read the Bible. He's telling us that anytime we have an unreconciled relationship, we have an, a, a brother who is offended, we need to stop. And this would have been seen as extreme. Scholars think that the Sermon on the Mount was preached in the region of Galilee. If that's the case, if you were a worshiper, you, you traveled 80 miles to Jerusalem, to the temple, to offer your sacrifice. And in, at that point, you've got your sacrifice, you're ready to go. If you remembered that there was an unreconciled relationship, what Jesus is telling you is leave the animal there, go back, take a week, return, reconcile, and then come back to the temple to offer your sacrifice. The point is that right relationships with brothers and sisters are so important to God, so important that we need to do whatever it takes to restore them. So that means our love for one another is not optional. Our, our unity and love as brothers and sisters in Christ was purchased 
by the blood of Christ. And it's a gospel issue. You see this in places like the high priestly prayer of John 17, where Jesus prayed this for his present and future disciples. He said, he prayed in John 17, 23, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. So he wanted his disciples to be perfectly one, to live in harmony for what purpose? So that the world would know that the Father sent the Son, Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, and that God is a God of love. So that means for us, if we live at odds with our brothers and sisters, if we have something against them or if they have something against us, that undermines the core of the gospel. At that point, the world can't see that the Father sent the Son. The world can't see that God is a God of love because our relationships as God followers are broken. In fact, this is so important that one indicator of our love for God is our love for one another. 1 John 4.20, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. It's one thing for us to say, I love God. It's one thing for us to show up to church, to take communion, to drop a check or drop our offering in the offering basket. But it's another thing to demonstrate that love for God by loving a brother or loving a neighbor, loving someone within this church family who is difficult to love, someone who has offended us. And the temptation here, church, is that we would deceive ourselves like the Pharisees, that we would choose a path of selective obedience and therefore be hypocrites. You see, the Pharisees deceived themselves. They thought, well, if I just do these, if I obey in these outward acts, outward acts of worship, I can get a free pass in these other areas of obedience. I get a free pass in these other areas. The Pharisees were careful about keeping certain parts of the law really, really, really carefully. In fact, they tithed even their garden herbs. They tithed their mint, their dill, their cumin. Tithing is good. It's commanded, but it's no substitute for obedience. And bringing a gift to the altar, preaching a sermon, singing praises, knowing God's Word, showing up here to, to worship corporately on Sunday. It's good, it's commanded, but it's no substitute for obedience. Jesus warns us that if we ignore, we can't simply ignore broken relationships with others and think that everything's okay. God says, if you have broken relationships with others, you have a broken relationship with me. So important that we are called here to hit the pause button make things right, and then return. At Risen Hope Church, we, we celebrate the communion. We celebrate the Lord's Supper twice a month. So it's a regular way for us to remember the Lord's death and to celebrate His work for us as sinners in need of a Savior. The Lord's Supper also helps us to keep short accounts. We don't want to let a week or even a day go by where we have unreconciled relationships. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we are commanded to examine ourselves before we partake the Lord's Supper because we don't want to partake the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner and bring judgment upon ourselves. And there is a time to pass on the Lord's Supper. But, I, I, but we need to be careful here. 
We need to be very careful because it can be easy for us to say or to think, well, I'm not reconciled with somebody yet, so I'm simply going to just pass on the Lord's Supper. Well, no, that's, I mean, we don't want to just fall into an easy solution. If we belong to Jesus, we need to receive what Jesus offers to his people, his body and his blood. We don't want to add sin to sin by refusing to commune with our Lord. The passage says, first be reconciled to your brother, and then catch the next part, and then come and offer your gift. Catch that? We still need to offer our gift. We still need to worship. We still need to uh, engage with who God is. We don't want to be negligent in our spiritual duties. We still must worship God. Before we go on to the last part of our passage this afternoon, I want to share something from the Heidelberg Catechism, which is a nice summary of everything we've covered so far. The the Catechism has a question-and-answer format to go through the basic Christian truths. Question 107 Is it enough, then, that we do not kill our neighbor in any such way? The answer, no. When God condemns envy, hatred, and anger, He commands us to love our neighbor as ourselves, to show patience, peace, gentleness, mercy, and friendliness toward Him, to protect Him from harm as much as we can, and to do good even to our enemies. And then the last part, Jesus wraps up this this section here on anger and unreconciled relationships by underscoring the urgency, the absolute urgency of reconciling broken relationships. Let's look at verse 25 and 26. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, You will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Jesus is impressing upon his hearers, impressing on us now the sense of urgency. Come to terms quickly. It's while you're offering your gift. Go and be reconciled. Come to terms quickly. Reconcile now before it's too late. Because once you've reached the judge, God is the judge of all, it's too late. Once you pass from this life to the next, once the wheels of eternal justice have begun to turn, it's too late to make amends. The judge will hand you over to the guard, and you'll be put in prison, and you'll never get out. The point is that once you're thrown into prison, you're trapped. And this life sentence in prison is a picture of eternal punishment, eternal imprisonment in hell. Once again, Jesus says you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. This penny was one of the smallest Roman coins. If you remember, a denarius was worth one day of wages. Okay, that's denarius, one day of wages. But a penny was one sixty-fourth of a denarius. One sixty-fourth. So it was just a few minutes of work. Really small Roman coin. And we can think it's no big deal to have hatred or animosity or broken relationships. These are things that happen every day all the time in this broken world. But these things are so poisonous, so harmful, so disqualifying for the kingdom of heaven that that, that Jesus calls us to reconcile immediately. Christ calls us to a higher standard, the standard of love and harmony and reconciliation that's required for all kingdom citizens. A similar point is made in Matthew 18. 
in the parable of the unforgiving servant. The point Jesus makes is that your willingness to forgive other people is an indicator of whether you've been forgiven by God. And when Jesus says, come to terms quickly, as you will never get out until you've paid the last penny, your willingness to reconcile is an indicator of whether you've been reconciled with God. John Stott writes, we must not delay to put it right. We must not even allow the sun to set on our anger. But immediately, as soon as we are conscious of a broken relationship, we must take the initiative to mend it, to apologize for the grievance we have caused, to pay the debt we have left unpaid, to make amends. If we want to avoid committing murder in God's sight, we must take every possible positive step to live in peace and love with all men. So do we get this sense of urgency? We must not delay, not even allow the sun to set immediately because we don't want to be committing murder in the sight of God. But there's another reason for this sense of urgency, not just because we don't want to be committing murder, but the hardening effects of sin, how sin can harden our hearts so quickly. This hatred, this anger that we have, could so quickly turn into murder. We would be foolish to think it would, or it could never happen to us. Cain was angry with his brother in Genesis 4, and it quickly grew into hatred, and then he murdered his brother Abel. Does it scare you to think that the seed of anger that we have, the anger that just seems so common in our culture, that seems so common in everyday life, that that seed could grow into murder, actual murder. And that the murderous sin that lived inside of Cain is the same sin that lives, lives inside of each one of us. John Owen sounds the alarm on the hardening effects of sin on our lives. John Owen writes, <clears throat> Sin aims always at the greatest evil. <clears throat> Every time it rises up to tempt or entice, might it run its own course, it would become the greatest sin in that kind. <clears throat> Every unclean thought or glance would become adultery. Every covetous desire would become oppression. Every thought of unbelief would become atheism. And we can add, every angry thought would become murder. <clears throat> Here lies the deceitfulness of sin, which hardens men to their ruin, Hebrews 3.13. It seems modest and insignificant, but having once got footing in the heart, it constantly gains more ground and presses on. And pressing forward makes the soul take little notice that a falling away from God has already happened. So church, we need to be vigilant against the deceitfulness of sin because it can so quickly burrow inside of our heart, press forward to the point where our soul takes little notice that we're already falling away from God. So where does this leave us? Is God this cosmic killjoy, giving us impossible rules that we have to obey, watching us with billions of cameras? Is the kingdom of heaven like the country of Singapore, clean but no fun and ultimately oppressive? Is it oppressive for us to live under these rules that are being given in the Sermon on the Mount? 
These are strict rules. Well, Eve thought that way. Given everything in the Garden of Eden, was given one rule to obey and thought that God was oppressive. And we can think that way too when we separate the law from the lawgiver. You see, the lawgiver is Jesus Christ himself, who Jesus who walked this earth, who never indulged once in sinful anger or insulted someone or hated someone. He never threw an insult at someone. He always pursued peace and reconciliation with others, even those who wronged him, even those who wanted him dead. Even at the Last Supper, when Judas was about to betray him, he was loving Judas until the end. And he did that for us. Did that for us. Deep down, each of us, we know that we're guilty of murder. That we've been angry. That we've hated others. We've thrown insults around. We've failed to reconcile like we should or as quickly as we should. But the gospel... The good news of Christ is that Jesus kept the whole law for us and then was punished in our place. The lawgiver isn't this power-hungry deity, mean-spirited guy up on high waiting for us to trip up. No, at the cross, the lawgiver showed us that he is a lawgiver of love, a lawgiver who laid down his life for us, who spilled his own blood for us, for those who broke his law. And he did, the lawgiver, he didn't just give us a law that was impossible to obey. This, this perfect, holy law, he fulfilled it for us. He met the full requirements of the law. Everything that God intended and required when he said, you shall not murder, he fulfilled it. He fulfilled it. He never got angry, never, got, never hated, always loved his neighbor as much as we ought to love ourselves. <clears throat> and with the life of Christ... In you, if you are trusting in Jesus, if you belong to Jesus, you have the power now to avoid sinful anger. You have the power to go reconcile with a brother who's offended you or whom you have offended. God has given us divine power. God has come in the person of Christ, given us himself, given us the Savior so that we can live a life of godliness. So as Christians, we don't have to be afraid of the law. We don't have to view this as restrictive to us. In fact, we can embrace the law of God because we know the heart of the lawgiver, the lawgiver who loved us and gave himself up for us. And if you're not a Christian here this afternoon, we want to thank you. Thank you for for being with us. Thank you for visiting our church. Thank you for coming. We want you to know that you're always welcome to be part of our gathering. But we want you to know King Jesus. We want you to live under his protection, under his rule, under his reign. And to do that, you you simply need to humble yourself, to just admit that you've broken his laws. You failed to live up to his standard, God's absolute standard of perfection in thought, word, and deed. That you've been guilty of the sin of murder, the, the crime of murder, and many other crimes. But that if you repent, if you turn from your sin, if you want to leave that behind because you love Jesus, you want Jesus more than you love, want your sin, if you turn to him, and you could do that even now, God promises he will wipe away all of your sin, give you a clean slate, slate, and you will no longer be guilty of murder. You can be freed. You can be forgiven. He can cleanse you from all unrighteousness, and he can free you to love him and love others. And if you're interested in doing that, please, 
Come talk to one of the pastors. Talk to the friend who brought you. We'd love, you to, intro- we'd love to introduce you to King Jesus. And church, let us just take a moment just to pray as we consider, consider King Jesus and his call upon our lives. Lord God, you've given us a, a perfect law. Lord, a perfect law that on the outside can seem to others oppressive and restrictive and impossible. But God, we come to you knowing ahead of time, that we've broken the law and we have found in our Savior someone who has rescued us, who has redeemed us, who kept the law for us and now gives us the power by your Spirit, oh God, to live that life of perfect obedience in you, Lord, for your glory. And I pray as we head out this week, God, that you would fill us with your Spirit, God, that you would teach us what it means to love our neighbor to love even our enemies, God, to reconcile quickly with those we have offended or who have offended us. In Jesus' name, amen.